Good morning. You all sound like you got what you wanted for Christmas, which we did. We got a Savior that first uh, Christmas Sunday, or Christmas Day, I should say. Well, I want to encourage you to come out for our New Year's Eve service. As Charlie mentioned, we'll be showing our annual recap video of the things that happened this past year that God did through CCT. And of course, we know, especially recently, we haven't been able to do all the normal things that uh, we've done in our history as a church. But that doesn't mean God hasn't used us and he's not continuing to move. So you can indeed uh, join us for that. We're also going to be doing a bit of a infomercial, if you will, about our building situation and the steps we are taking in the direction we are seeking and encourage you to come out for that as well. And then, of course, one of the main events of the evening will be the revelation of our word for 2020. And our word is not vision. 2020 vision. Come on now. I know it's first service, but... But I think you will be encouraged by it. And I'm very excited that we'll be teaching uh, the theme verse for the year and those surrounding it uh, the following Sunday morning, uh, next Sunday. And just a very, very timely and encouraging word for us in this coming year. So here we go. You ready? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. We'll look at verses 6 through 15 this morning. And I'll remind you that last time we were reminded that we are citizens of heaven living on earth. And that like Paul, we have the right to exercise our rights and should do so as he did for the furtherance of the gospel and for our own sake and safety. Now, Paul said in Philippians 3.20, as we mentioned last time, that our citizenship is in heaven from which We also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I haven't told you Jesus is coming again yet this morning, so I'll throw it in right there. Now, Acts 22, 25 to 29, we read that as they bound Paul with thongs or strips of leather, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, He went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. Citizenship, as we mentioned, was often obtained through bribery or a fee. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him or he had committed an illegal act. Now, Paul, a citizen of heaven, used his earthly citizenship as a Roman to his advantage, and so should we, especially in times such as these. Amen? Now, our verses today are also going to tell us that Paul would bear witness of Jesus in Rome, and the Lord himself will make this revelation to Paul. And Paul, again, in future chapters, is going to use his citizenship to make sure of his safe arrival there, although the Lord certainly didn't need Paul's help. Now, this reminds us that sometimes pursuing and doing the will of God is just practical and logical, and we have to take the steps that make sense oftentimes, yet we also note that God does things in ways that are past finding out. After all, He is God, we are not. 
Now in Acts 25, 9-12, we're going to find next year, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged, claiming his right as a Roman citizen. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you know very well, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered and said, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Now, as I said last time, there's a difference between dying for your witness and dying for your wallet, or for no good reason. If Paul was not afraid to die. He said, I have no concern about death. But Paul also noted that he had a reason to live. He didn't see dying for false accusations as something worthy of his calling, even though Jesus came and was falsely accused and executed wrongly. But this is what Jesus came to do. But he came also that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, as we approach the beginning of a new year and all the things associated traditionally with uh, this particular season of any given year, I thought we would do well to consider some things that are appropriate for this time of year and this season of history. And the time of year that I'm referring to is not the beginning of a new year, but rather the end of this one, coupled with the fact that we are nearing the end of the church age as well. Now, our title this last Sunday of 2019 is one that has been used in a derogatory sense in an effort to make Christians look like a bunch of looney tunes out of touch with reality. Hollywood loves to use what we'll have as our title this morning to portray us as some kind of kooky, crazy crowd, and they often will use a person who looks that way and acts that way. So let's help them make their case this morning, you loony birds, because they think we're a bunch of screwballs anyway. So I say let's jump right in. And our title this morning is, are you ready? The end is near. The end is near. Now, in the book of Acts, the end of Paul's life is near. On our calendars, the end of 2019 is near. And prophetically, the end of the church age is near. And Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore... Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in what kind of conduct? Holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Somebody say amen to that this morning. Now... I have to say, I'm glad to be here this morning with you bunch of looney tunes. So we can address the question Peter asked, considering that we're 2,000 years closer to what he wrote of. Now, the question he posed was, what manner of persons ought we to be? How do we conduct ourselves in such a time as this? And we're going to combine Peter's questions and Paul's actions as to what manner of persons we ought to be 
as people knowing the end is near. So in honor of the word of God, would you stand and read with me, please? We'll start with verses six through nine of Acts chapter 23. Acts 23, let's start in verse six and read down to verse nine. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And Lord, we thank you that we serve the true and living God. We thank you that you have told us all things beforehand. We thank you that you have not hidden from us the end of all things, and we can know, and you even encouraged us, to be ready for your coming and to live in expectancy of your return. So, Lord, we thank you as we come to the end of this year, the end of this decade, the end of the church age, Lord, that we indeed would look up knowing our redemption is nigh. Teach us how to live until you come for us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in the grand scheme of things, Paul was at a time where it could be said of him, in more ways than one, that the end was near. He'll spend two years in Caesarea by the sea, or Caesarea Maritima, as it's referred to in Israel, and then he's going to spend two years in Rome, waiting for an audience with Caesar. Now, the church historian Eusebius tells us that Paul was beheaded by the order of Caesar Nero, or one of his underlings, somewhere between 65 and 68 A.D., And thus the end was near for Paul personally, as he is now some four years from his death. Now we also know at the time the end of the temple era was near, as Luke and all the other New Testament authors would certainly have made mention of the destruction of Jerusalem if Acts or any of the epistles were written after 70 A.D. Now, estimates are that Paul was somewhere between 62 and 68 years old at the time of this writing, which would put him born about the same time as Jesus. Now, I can bear witness to the fact this morning that if Paul was 62, he was still a young man. I'll let you know if he was still a young man at 63 in a few months. Now... Paul, in his practical practical and logical wisdom, realized there was a divided audience of Pharisees and Sadducees, and he appealed to those who shared the same background that he did, and his upbringing as well as a Pharisee. Now, the Sadducees were the anti-supernaturalists of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, therefore that made them anti-Christ. Nor did they believe in angels, nor did they believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, these two groups were usually at odds with one another. However, they united in their shared hatred of Jesus and conspired together to arrange his illegal mock trial and ensuing execution. 
Now here they take the opposite course and they break rank with one another and the Pharisees side with Paul. And they even quote what Gamaliel said concerning the apostles back in Acts chapter 5 where he, the uh, famed rabbi, said in Acts 5, 38 and 39, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to what? Fight against God. And this is the same argument that the Pharisees make. And as they side with Paul and the Sadducees, very definitely against him. Now, we know the end was near for the temple and even nearer for Paul. Yet here he is wisely using his experience from the past in an effort to divide the Jews from Ephesus and pit them against one another instead of himself. In other words, listen, in his mid-60s, Paul is still mixing it up with his enemies. Now, in Genesis 17, 17, I want to make our way to our first consideration this morning by making a point. And in uh, Genesis 17:17, 17, 17, we're told that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Then in Exodus 7, 7, we're told Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh and declared to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Then we're told of Caleb in Joshua 14, 10 to 12. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old, and yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, for both for going out and coming in. Now, therefore... Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you have heard in that day how the Anakim or the giants were there and that the cities were great and fortified. And it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. So here you've got a group of elderly people being used mightily by God. And in contrast to these, we know that Joseph, when he had the dream that told him of his future, was 17 years old. And not too many years later, he rose to second in command over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Daniel was around 17 when he was carried away to Babylon, and he soon became uh, the head of the Lord's. Mary was in her mid-teens when she gave birth to Jesus. Now, Abraham and Sarah have a child from whom would come Jacob, from whom would come the Jews, from whom would come Jesus. Moses and Aaron are in their 80s battling Pharaoh for the release of their people to go and worship God. Listen, Caleb at 85, he didn't ask for beachfront property in Israel and the easy life when the promised land was being assigned to God's people. He said, give me this mountain where the giants live. Now, listen, here's the point. Here's the first thing for us to remember since the end is near. Listen, are you ready? The time to quit serving the Lord on earth is when you arrive in heaven. The time to quit serving the Lord on earth is when you arrive in heaven. Now, Joseph, Daniel, and Mary were young. Moses, Caleb, and Abraham were old. Paul and the other apostles were in the middle. 
and they all serve the Lord until the end of their time on earth. We're told even in Judges 2, 8 about Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 year old. 10 years old. Even at 110, he's called the servant of the Lord. Paul says on the other end of the spectrum to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith in purity. And listen, as we recognize that we are citizens of heaven living on earth, we need to understand that if we're still here on earth, there's a reason we're still here. And God has more to do uh, both by us, to us, and through us. And when the work of the collective church is done, we're going to go home all at the same time in the rapture of the church. Amen? Amen. Now, the same is true of us individually, since we are in a room of all ages as well, and we are all servants of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, even as he is fighting here in our text. I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, the end is near. The end of the year, the end of a decade, the end of the church age, which means the end of our opportunities to serve and glorify God is also near, at least on the earth. Maybe it's time for some to include in their resolutions this year, putting God first and above all else and serving him only. And that is true whether you are young or old or somewhere in between. The end is near. Jesus is coming soon. And here we have a veteran of the faith and the Apostle Paul, again, mixing it up with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and causing a loud outcry against him, as we'll see in a moment. Paul didn't shy away from serving God because of adversity and because of age. He kept pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where you say... Amen. Now, let's look at verses 10 and 11 after this outcry arises. And there was a a party uh, arising and protesting against him, saying, we need, uh, we find no evil in this man. Then we're told, and it's interesting that uh, they mention the Sadducees and not believing in any spirit or angel. And yet the Pharisees say, if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And the next thing that happens is we have a vision from the Lord. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at where? Now, I couldn't help but think in reading this that Claudius Lysias' head must have been spinning by this time. It seems like every time Paul opened his mouth, there was a riot that followed, and Paul's life was put in jeopardy, and he's constantly bringing him back and forth into the barracks. And having found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, Claudius was no longer a spectator in this event, but now he had an official responsibility to protect Paul, so he commands some soldiers to bring Paul back into the barracks. The next night, 
Whether in a vision or in person is a matter of debate for some. The Lord Jesus, we're told, stood with Paul and told him to be of good cheer. Now, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we're reminded that, that as Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's speaking to his disciples, which would include us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always until the end of the first century. Until all the apostles die. Until when? The end of the age. Amen or so be it. Now the Lord standing with Paul does not necessitate his physical presence any more than when we say we stand with so-and-so on this particular issue. It's a figure of speech, and it's likely that the Lord spoke to Paul the same way he spoke to John the Beloved in a vision while John was in the Spirit. Because the Lord is with us always, even to the end of the age. And the end is near, and the Lord is with us today. Amen? Now, some commentators believe that because of Paul's love and burden for his own countrymen, that Paul was in despair over his recent unsuccessful attempts to share the gospel with his fellow Jews that they might be saved. Well, the Lord, first of all, reminds him in a comforting and encouraging way that he had testified of him in Jerusalem. In other words, what Paul had done was answer God's call on his own life successfully. Now, this reminds us that our responsibility is giving testimony of Jesus. In other words, we are called to sow. The saving is left in the hands of God. We can't save. I can't save. You can't save. Jesus saves. Amen. So the Lord says to Paul, first and foremost, what you were required to do in Jerusalem, you did. You testified of me. Now, he then tells Paul that what you did in Jerusalem, you're also going to do in Rome. Now, we have to imagine and get into Paul's head a little bit, that having seen this mob erupt multiple times, having heard the calls for his death away with such a person, for he is not fit to live, when he said the Lord sent him to the Gentiles, there was an explosion as well, and it seems likely that Paul was thinking the end is near, at least for him. So the Lord says, by implication, I'm not done with you, Paul. You're going to do what you did in Jerusalem in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Now, this scene reminds me of something that happened with the disciples when it seemed like the end was near for them. In Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41, we're told on the same day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not, what, care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? 
And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now the disciples well knew that the Jews believed that when the Mashiach ben David came or the Messiah of Israel came, that he would have authority over uh, nature. And he displays this in front of their eyes. And they then say, Who is this? Is this him? Now, one thing I want you to note is before the storm ever arose, Jesus gave the disciples their destination. And I think it also noteworthy that we're told there were other little boats. And some may wonder, did they make it? Well, it says the other little boats were with him. They were with Jesus. So their destination would be the same that Jesus had. Jesus told them, get in the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, let me ask you this morning, with that information... Did it matter what happened between the two coasts? Did it matter? Where were they going to wind up? Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the... So where were they going to end up? On the other side. Now, when we talked through Mark, we made the somewhat tongue-in-cheek point that when we are in the middle of the storms of life, we need to remember that the middle is not the end. We are going to make it. We will make it to the other side. Are you here this morning? Now... The disciples thought the end was near, (coughs) excuse me, even though they had been given their destination in advance. Paul likely thought the end was near, so the Lord told him, there's more for you to do in Rome. He told them that he uh, had used him in Jerusalem when Paul was in Caesarea, and then he told them he had another destination, which was Rome. Now, here's our point this morning. Here's a second observation since the end is near. Listen this morning. The enemy can plot and plan, but he can never prevail. The enemy can plot and plan, but he can never prevail. Now, Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side. So they were going to get in the boat and they would wind up on the other side. Jesus told Paul he would bear witness of him in Rome. So where was Paul going to go next? He was going to Rome. Did the size of the storm matter to the disciples? It did to them. Did it matter to Jesus? No. Did the riots over Paul matter? They did to Paul, but they didn't to Jesus. Could either of these efforts thwart the the word and the will of God? Absolutely not. Remember when Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to a 90-foot high, 15-foot wide, solid gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar that he made of himself. He gave a command (coughs) that when the music played, everybody was to bow down to the statue. And this trio of young Hebrew men would not do so. So the king called them in and said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't bow down when you hear uh, the music being played? And he says, Hey, you know, who is the God who can deliver you for your disobedience? Who can deliver you from the burning, fiery furnace that I have prepared for all who refuse to worship and bow down to the statue? And in Daniel 3, 16 to 20, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebi, Nebi, Nebi. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we what? Serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O kingy. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, I see your point. Go your way, be warm and be filled. (laughs) 
No, Nebuchadnezzar was full of what? Fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who was in it, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Well, it seems like rather the end being near, that the end was here for this trio of Hebrew young men. But God, even when. The fact is, as the narrative continues in 24 to 25 of the same chapter, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Now remember, it was so hot that the men who he had commissioned to throw these three young men into the furnace were actually killed by the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, like they always said, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like who? The Son of God. Listen, the devil can plot and plan all he wants, but he cannot prevail. He can stir up storms. He can send crowds into frenzy over what we believe and who we follow. Yet he cannot and will not prevail against the church corporate or the individual saint. Now, listen this morning. An article reported over these past few days from multiple uh, media outlets. The headline from the Daily Mail in the UK said this. Islamic State terrorists kill 11 Christians on Christmas Day to avenge the death of their leaders in Iraq and Syria as a warning to Christians. Now, in light of all that we just said, did Satan prevail? No, he didn't prevail. Why? Because all 11 Christians are now in the presence of the Lord where there is only fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. They're now in a place where there is no more death or sorrow. They are now living in immortal, incorruptible bodies and they will forever be with the Lord. And thus Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, for me... To live as Christ and to die is what? Listen, that's not exclusive to Paul. That's inclusive of all of us. It's true for every born again believer. We have a foretold destination that storms and riots orchestrated by the devil cannot alter. He can plot and plan and some will wind up in the fiery furnace and the Lord will deliver from it. Others will wind up facing the actual end of their lives and the Lord will deliver them from this world because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Either way, the devil loses and the Christian wins. That's where you say amen. Amen. Now let's look at 12 to 15 and we'll finish off our time this morning. And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, we need to note the little progression here. Right after the Lord tells Paul, you're going to do in Rome what you did in Jerusalem, a vow was made by his enemies to neither eat or drink until Paul was dead. Now, 
We know that Paul didn't die for another four years. But the vow maker should have. Amen? Kind of like the celebrities who said they'd move to Canada if Trump were elected, but they're still here today. Even though many of us offered to help them pack. Now, this underscores our last point and opens the door for another. The narrative we're now in the middle of began back in chapter 22, and it continues through the end of the book of Acts. And there's much more to what we just read, and we'll continue in future weeks and months to examine it. But this one fact that a promise was immediately followed by a problem makes a point for us. Now, in Revelation 12, 10 to 12, John said, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused him before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Remember, there'll be a numberless multitude who are saved during the tribulation period from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has what? A short time. He knows the end is near. And listen, we're not the only ones who know that. Satan knows the word, and his constant efforts to steal, kill, and destroy is well documented in Scripture and church history. And I think we all recognize there are seasons of church history where it seems the enemy is launching a major offensive beyond his normal efforts. It's also true personally where it seems as though one season of life is a time where the end of one attack of the enemy signals the beginning of another. Anybody know what I'm talking about here this morning? And we no sooner get a reminder of our destination and a word of encouragement from the word of the Lord and another all-out assault begins to happen. Well, the end is near, saints. Hmm. Are you unconvinced? The end is near. Amen. Jesus is coming for his church soon, and then we're coming back with him seven plus years later. Now, we don't know if there's a time lapse between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation, but what we do know is what's important to know, and that is we'll be with the Lord. Now, Peter gave us some wisdom concerning this fact. In 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, he said, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all, All things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover, meaning setting a matter aside, a multitude of sins. Then he says, be hospitable to one another. Ooh, without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things he may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Hebrews says, the first coming of Jesus indicated We are in the last days. In time past, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us in a son. 
Paul gave very specific indications of the moral climate of the last days in 2 Timothy 3, where he said the times would be perilous, and indeed they are. You can run through 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, and see a checklist of the moral conditions that are present on the earth at this time. Peter said the end of all things is at hand, and he would also write that scoffers would come in the last days. James said corruption would be rampant in the last days, and all that assures us is that the end is near, and the devil knows he has a short time. So, here's our last truth. Since the end of 2019 is near, the end of the second decade of the 21st century is near, the end of the church age is near, and the end of all things is at hand, here's what we need to remember. Listen this morning. God's peace does not require the absence of problems. Hmm. You said amen to the first two. Now, what's the problem with this one? God's peace does not require the absence of problems. That's a little better. Now, we are told again and again in Scripture that evil is going to escalate in the last days. We are told the times will be perilous. We are told that times will be immoral. We are told it will be a loveless generation. It will be one governed by deception and delusion. And that we will be hated by all for Jesus' name's sake. And the world will strategize against us like they did here with Paul, calling evil good and good evil. Now, in John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have, not might, not good, but you will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, these contrasting expressions need to be noted as the end is near. And that means that the peace we have in Christ does not exempt us from times of tribulation. Jesus even pairs the two as companions together. Now, there is a problem-free existence that awaits us. A time and place where death and all the things that cause it are forever banned, including sin. And we're going to live in a place that what many will die for and even some kill to obtain is as common as pavement. The streets of heaven are paved with what? Gold, pure gold. And because the end is near, our future habitation is near as well. Now, remember what Peter said we're to do in light of the end of all things being at hand? He said, be serious and watchful in your prayers. In other words, be a person of prayer. Give time to it. Have fervent love for one another. And then he says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And not to be focused on the sins of one another, but rather to encourage one another. Set a matter aside. These are to be our attitudes when the end is near. And even now, or in the history of the church. But then he added this. Peter said, as each one has received a gift, or because we all have spiritual gifts, minister it to one another as stewards, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. An oracle was one who spoke uh, spiritual things, and in this case uh, would be applicable to those like the prophets of old who spoke on God's behalf, his will and ways. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. It tells us that whatever God calls us to do, he enables us to do. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. And Peter concludes with a final Amen. Now, the end is near. 
And we are to serve the Lord for his glory until the end of our time on earth. Now, one last thing I want to leave you with this last week of 2019. I ran across in one of my commentaries a rather interesting quote from uh, the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. And he made this statement. Now, listen closely. Quote, How is it that many who profess and call themselves Christians do so little for the Savior whose name they bear? How is it that many whose faith and grace it would be uncharitable to deny work so little, give so little, say so little, take so little pains to promote Christ's cause and bring glory to to Christ in the world? These questions admit of only one answer. It is a low sense of debt and obligation to Christ, which is the amount of the whole matter. Let us pray daily that we may see the sinfulness of sin and the amazing grace of Christ more clearly and distinctly, end quote. What a challenge. And J.C. Rao, as many of his day, didn't mince any words. And he noted that there are Christians who it would be uncharitable to deny that they are people of the faith, yet he recognizes that not all are putting their hands to the plow. We all want to serve God until we are safely in heaven. Amen? We all need to be serving God because that's why he has left us here. And the end is near, the end of the year, the end of a decade, the end of the church age, to be sure. But the end of the church age also means the end of our opportunities to serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength on this earth. Now, I've said this before, and I will again in the future. I believe that when God wipes away every tear from our eyes someday, many of those tears will be tears of regret. For when we see him and see him as he is, every single person standing before him is going to regret not having done more for him. In light of all that he has done for us, I say that we live the rest of this year and however much time we have before he comes to take us all home, reducing the number of tears because we still have some time, but yet time is running out. And the end is near. Next year could be the year he takes us home. But this year isn't over. He could take us home today. Or tomorrow. Or the day after that. And therefore, let us be about the Father's business. Let us occupy till he comes. Let us not let the storms of life and the tribulations we encounter rob us of our peace or change our course in serving him. Abraham, Caleb, and Moses, and Aaron, in their 80s and beyond, serving God. Joshua, a servant of the Lord, and 110 at the end of his days. At the other end of the spectrum, Joseph, 17, Daniel, about the same age, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same age group in their late teens, most likely, because we're told in Scripture that the young men, the best and the brightest of Israel, were carried away captive to Babylon, and these young men served the Lord, and they indeed did not compromise, even though their experiences were laced with difficulty, Just like ours, Jesus is coming soon. He's given us all the information we need to know that our redemption is nigh. It is time for us to look up. So listen, let's finish strong. Let's finish with uh, 
a kick, so to speak, as we made the illustration in the past, that any long-distance runner saves a little bit extra fuel in the tank for the last portion of the race. And I believe it is quite clear that we are at the last portion of the race. So let's give it all we have. Amen. Amen. For Jesus is coming soon. And Father, we are grateful this morning for our time in your matchless word. We thank you, Lord, for this exchange with Paul and the many details of it we didn't cover this morning, but we'll look at more closely in coming weeks. That he used wisdom in how he dealt with the opposition that faced him. And Lord, in the midst of the encounters we see, even in uh, this particular section where he is imprisoned and has to be carried away and put in the barracks for his own safety. And then 40 people gather against him in collusion to seek to bring about an end of his life. And in the middle of all that, you come and stand by him and tell him, I'm not done with you, Paul. You will bear witness of me in Rome. We thank you for these reminders for us all. We thank you, Lord, for telling us that in you we have peace and in the world we'll have tribulation, reminding us we can have those contrasting expressions simultaneously at any given point. We can indeed, in the midst of tribulation, have a peace that guards our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And help us, Lord, to finish well this year. Help us to start strong next year and continue, Lord, should you, Terry, And we see all of 2020. May we do so from day one to day 365 in service to you for your namesake and glory. We thank you for 2019 and all you have done. And we say, Lord, in conclusion, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We bless your holy and awesome name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.